It's Thursday, March 30th. Will Starbucks unionize? That's a tall order. We start here. In a contentious hearing, senators accuse the nation's largest coffee chain of union busting. This is really the new battleground for labor rights in America. With labor groups watching nationwide, the CEO says he's on solid grounds. How long should presidents have the right to take us back to war? Is 20 years enough? Ending these authorizations hasn't happened in 50 years. Two decades after we invaded Iraq, Congress wants to take back the power. And being an amateur athlete has never been so lucrative. You're seeing athletes who are making as much as millions of dollars a year. But at what age is the march to stardom just madness? From ABC News, this is Start Here. I'm Brad Milkey. Think back to the 1960s. So the way we Americans do it, quality in the things we buy is designed in built in and inspected in from start to finish. America was the world's greatest manufacturing hub. Our workers were the envy of the world. At this moment, one out of three American jobs were union jobs. Since then, of course, a lot has changed. Since the 1960s, American union membership has fallen just about every single year. Labor advocates say it's no coincidence that income inequality has grown exponentially in that time. But in the last few years, we are seeing a renewed interest in unionization. Every worker everywhere deserves a union, deserves a chance to fight. And what's important here is it's not just factory employees and assembly line workers. There aren't that many of those jobs anymore. That's why unionization is down. No, the people looking to organize increasingly belong to America's new economy. Amazon workers, tech employees, service workers like baristas. To many chain restaurants, Starbucks has been the canary in the coal mine. If workers can organize there, the thinking goes, they could do it anywhere. As more and more coffeehouse workers were filling out union cards over the last couple years, something else happened. Bernie Sanders became the chairman of the Senate committee dedicated to health and labor issues. And that's why yesterday, Starbucks CEO Howard Schultz was called in before Congress for a roasting. ABC senior congressional correspondent Rachel Scott is at the Senate right now. Rachel... This got kind of like prickly, right? I was not expecting so much heat out of out of this hearing. Yeah, I think uh, a roasting is a fair way to describe it, Brad. I mean, look, <laughs> for you, it might be a place where you're getting sort of this quick caffeine fix, right? You grab a sweet afternoon pink drink. But this is really the new battleground for labor rights in America. So here you had the longtime CEO of Starbucks, Howard Schultz, come before lawmakers, something that he really resisted doing. He only came under threat of a subpoena. So he decided to come in, sat before lawmakers, and took some questions. Were you ever informed of or involved in a decision to fire a worker who was part of a union organizing drive? I was not. Starbucks is facing serious allegations over cracking down on unions. Allegations that span from retaliating against employees who want to start unions to even closing some stores. But they completely deny union busting altogether. In fact, he came before lawmakers and he said that they've actually worked overtime long before people were trying to organize at Starbucks to provide benefits. They provide company stock options. They pay on average $17.50 an hour, more than the minimum wage in every single state. But I could tell you a lot of lawmakers in that room were simply not buying it. 
And many of them were pointing back to this ruling that we got from a federal judge just a few weeks ago saying that Starbucks had committed misconduct. Yeah, I was going to say, it's not it's not even just allegations, right? Like several judges have basically ruled, yeah, Starbucks did bad things here over and over. Exactly. This federal judge in New York came in and said that Starbucks had committed egregious and widespread misconduct, trying to stop workers from organizing unions that showed a general disregard for employees' fundamental rights. And Brad, we're not just talking about one or two complaints or one or two accusations that they violated federal law. That federal judge found that Starbucks had violated the federal law hundreds of times. And that's something that Democratic Senator Chris Murphy pointed right out. It is akin to someone who has been ticketed for speeding a hundred times saying I've never violated the law because every single time, every single time the cop got it wrong. Well, and Rachel, like why Starbucks specifically? This is by far kind of the biggest name to get hauled in by Bernie Sanders and, and his committee. Why is Starbucks front and center here? Yeah, well, Brad, you know, I actually traveled to Knoxville, Tennessee to meet a Starbucks barista, Maggie Carter. She's a single mother who told me that this fight is much larger than Starbucks. We're in this unique place where people don't really understand. uh, People want to join unions, but they don't understand what it's like to try to join one and, and establishing a first CBA. So being able to show that to the world would be really impactful for all workers, not just Starbucks workers. And she knows that other big companies were watching the testimony unfold here on Capitol Hill. Maggie is a part-time Starbucks worker. She's a full-time student. Uh, She actually organized the first Starbucks union in the South. And she said after she did that, her hours were cut down so much that her paycheck is now only $80. Mm. She told me that's not even enough to pay her utility bill, let alone rent and providing for her son. And, you know, I asked her, Brad, I said, all right, well, if it's so bad at Starbucks, why don't you just go somewhere else? She said, look, this is much more than these green aprons that we wear every single day. This fight is so important to me. I'm willing to go through whatever it takes to see partners come into this company and not have an experience similar to mine. They're fighting for better wages. They're fighting for better benefits. And they're hoping that this becomes a ripple effect for other companies as well. And Starbucks says they're not standing in the way of these workers at all, that they think directly negotiating with workers is better than with a union, but they claim they won't stand in the way of those organizing. But Rachel, you mentioned the green aprons. I think they do also have a symbolic effect beyond just the workers themselves. Like a lot of Americans see Starbucks as like Republicans might call this company kind of woke, right? Like they're supporting gay rights and they're doing the diversity training. Republicans have not been on their side. And yet they're also this huge, huge corporation. So I'm wondering what were the like the party dynamics in this hearing? This was really interesting to see uh, from inside the hearing room, Brad. I mean, you had Senator Mitt Romney who put it pretty clearly. I recognize at the outset there's some irony uh, to a non-coffee drinking Mormon uh, conservative uh, defending a Democrat candidate for president in perhaps one of the most liberal companies in America. And that's exactly what's happening. That's, I forgot that Schultz ran for president, too. Yeah, that's right. It was short-lived, but he was an independent, technically running against Donald Trump. You had one Republican after another sort of lining up, coming to the defense of Starbucks. And a lot of them made it clear that they obviously do not condone anyone breaking federal law here. But they saw this as a strictly partisan hearing. Republicans even said that they found it rich that Schultz was being grilled by people who had never had the opportunity to create a single job or run a company as big as Starbucks. I mean, again, we're talking about the world's largest coffee chain that employs hundreds of thousands of people. 
yeah, exactly. Lots of jobs on the line here and, and really lots of industries paying attention to this as well because of the union implications here. All right. Rachel Scott there at the Capitol. Thank you. Thanks, Brad. Next up on Start Here, they gave the president the authority to send in troops and never took it back. That's after the break. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. Have you ever wondered what you would do with an extra hour in your day? I think about this all the time. I'm like, I would be so productive. I'd exercise more or I'd read a book or I'd take a nap, like restore myself. We often find ourselves yearning for these extra hours, but the real question is, what would you do if you were making yourself a priority? Well, how about therapy? It can help you discover what's important so you can make the most of your time. If you've ever benefited from therapy, you know how transformative it can be. It's not just for those who have experienced major trauma. Therapy empowers you to learn positive coping skills, set boundaries, and become the best version of yourself. If you're considering starting therapy, you should give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient, flexible, and tailored to your schedule. You just fill out a brief questionnaire. You'll be matched with a licensed therapist. And here's the beauty of it. You can switch therapists if you're not finding the right fit. No additional charge. Take the first step. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash start here today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash start here. We all know there are things in life that you have to compromise on, but when it comes to your health, there should be no compromise. Don't go back to that one doctor, you know the type, like I've had this person before, that doesn't actually listen to you or who seems just in a rush to end your appointment that you spent months making. Instead, check out ZocDoc, the place where you can find and book doctors who will make you feel comfortable, listen to you, and prioritize your health. ZocDoc is a free app and website where you can search and compare highly rated in-network doctors near you and instantly book appointments with them online. You can search by location, availability, and insurance. So no compromises here because with ZocDoc, you got more options than you know. We're talking about booking appointments with tens of thousands of top-rated, patient-reviewed, credible doctors and specialists. Go to ZocDoc.com slash start here and download the ZocDoc app for free. Then find and book a top-rated doctor today. That's ZocDoc, Z-O-C-D-O-C dot com slash start here. ZocDoc.com slash start here. In addition to hearings, there was also a pretty big vote in the Senate yesterday in which a bipartisan group of lawmakers voted to repeal the order that began the Iraq war. But Brad, you might be saying the Iraq war is over. It's been over. Who cares? Well, this not only has symbolic importance, but could signal what Congress hopes is a new day in Washington. Let's go to ABC's Trish Turner, who covers Congress. Trish, I keep seeing this acronym A-U-M-F, OMF. Why is OMF? Like, what, what is that? Why is it so important? Welcome to Washington, land of the acronym. So for this one, it's the Authorization for Use of Military Force. And what the Senate has done, uh, what they did yesterday, is rescind both authorizations that allowed two presidents, both named Bush, to go to war. As I report to you, air attacks are underway against military targets in Iraq. 1991 the Gulf War. That was George Herbert Walker Bush. And then later his son, George W. Bush, went to uh, war in Iraq. At this hour, American and coalition forces are in the early stages of military operations 
to disarm Iraq. We just, in fact, crossed the 20-year mark. So imagine that both of those were still in place. So in the Senate, they wanted to reassert Congress's authority to declare war. And so essentially they came in, it's symbolic of course, but they came in and just said, look, we we have the power under the constitution to declare war. And so we're going to rescind these. On this vote, the yeas are 66, the nays are 30, and the bill is passed. Just ending these authorizations hasn't happened in 50 years. They haven't pulled back an authority. So that's essentially what they're doing. Like all the other wars that we've got, there are still authorizations like that are still in effect. That's right. There are a number that are still in the books. So we still have the uh, authorization that came in 2001, just days after the September 11th terrorist attacks. That's still in place. But amidst all of this argument about rescinding these two Iraq war-related authorizations, the lawmakers made clear a really big majority want to leave that 2001 order on the books because it also allows administrations to go after terrorist groups. But ISIS, Al-Qaeda, groups like that who were caught up in that particular uh, you know, region, they want to leave that one on the books, but certainly wanted to do away with the Iraq war authorizations, mainly because also the U.S. is now an ally. They're, you know, we're working with Iraq. They are partners in the region. And so, um, you know, there's a lot to be said about that, too. That's interesting because, yes, symbolic, of course, but it sounds like there are also practical effects here, like that basically up until now, the president has still been able to say under these authorization acts, we could still send troops into Iraq like that would still be under his control, essentially, because of Congress. Yeah, that's exactly right. So what the two sponsors of this uh, particular measure, um, Tim Kaine of Virginia, he's a Democrat, Todd Young, a Republican, former Marine, Tim Kaine's son is a Marine. They have a real vested you know, interest that came to Congress on a mission, um, in part to sunset these two war authorizations, mainly because they don't want a future president to use these as a foundation for going to war. And, and they've seen it before, right? So President Obama used uh, one of these to justify strikes against ISIS in Iraq and Syria. And then President Trump, you know, not that long ago, used one of these AUMFs to go after a high-ranking Iranian general. So Congress wants to reinsert itself into, at least into the discussion. And there's a philosophical argument that is age old. As long as I've been covering Washington, there's been a fight about whether the president has to seek the, uh, you know, permission from Congress to go to war. And so this is Congress reasserting itself into the equation and saying, yes, you do. We should also say, Brad, that the White House is fully on board with what Congress did yesterday. And so now they are waiting on the House to act. Fascinating. And I think a big deal here that this was so bipartisan in the Senate. We'll see where it goes next. Thank you so much, Trish. Thanks, Brad. The Final Four begins this weekend. And for the last couple weekends, I've been watching this AT&T ad during March Madness that really couldn't have happened a couple years ago. I can stay with this phone, say, four years. And when the time is right, I declare I'm ready for the next level of phones. That's Jacob Toppin, a current student at the University of Kentucky who signed a contract with AT&T for which he is getting paid. A few years ago, that would have gotten you kicked out of college ball, but not anymore. 
At the Supreme Court today, the NCAA got skunked. This is really important to all student athletes for us to be treated like adults. When the NCAA allowed college athletes to pursue compensation for their name, image, and likeness without losing their student status, it completely changed the game for what it means to be a college athlete. And ABC's Ashen Singh has been figuring out what that means for players and sports. Ashen, how lucrative can these deals get? Oh my gosh, Brad, these deals are unlike anything we've ever seen before. A lot of what we can see these athletes make starts at about the hundred to thousand dollar range. But you're seeing athletes who are making and could be making as much as millions of dollars a year. You think of high school baller Bronny James, who's LeBron James's son. Omaha Baloo feeds Bronny James, who drills it from deep. On three, which estimates name, image, and likeness earnings in athletics, projects that Bronny could make $7 million a year. <laughs> This time Manning gets rid of it, puts it right on the money. You have Arch Manning, the quarterback and nephew of Peyton and Eli Manning. And on three projects, he can make nearly $4 million a year. And Texas spent, what was that, $750,000 yeah. on a recruiting visit for him. <laughs> they must obviously really want him. And Brad, I don't know if you're watching the tournament at all, but you probably remember the Cavender Twins. Haley Cavender actually shushed the crowd on their way to winning against Indiana and advancing to the Elite Eight. They play for you, Miami. On three estimates, the Twins could be making $1.6 million a year. And you might know them from TikTok as well. They're kind of big there. When did you start noticing gaining traction and when you're like, yo, we should keep doing this? Um, it was this one particular TikTok I remember making. It was to the song Chicken Wing. And we're like, chicken wing, chicken wing in the middle of the street. It had like 30 million views, I think now. Um, and Haley and I were like, wow, like we heard about NIL eventually being a thing. Maybe like we could take advantage of the opportunity, obviously not before July 1st. But um, it was honestly just something fun to do. And then kind of happened right place, right time. I was not prepared for some of these dollar figures when we're talking about uh, name, image, and likeness. That's NIL, by the way. NIL is like the abbreviation everyone gives. And what's really interesting about what you said there was like these twins play women's basketball. This is not all just like men's basketball and football where like you might get a $10 million bonus for going pro. Not people in the WNBA, like not people in some of these other sports. This could be their biggest payday. That's totally true. And you're also looking at sports where you wouldn't think that professional athletes there would be making such large income. Do you guys mind walking me through some of your endorsements? We'd love to just get like get a rundown. Right. Um, so we're champs athlete. We're the first female athletes to ever sign with them. All right, guys. So we just got done working out in our favorite shoes, the Cookie Monsters. So this year, to help Hannah and I get all of our new responsibilities and taxes done right, we are teaming up with TurboTax. If you don't mind me asking, how, how much do you think you guys are pulling in a year? <laughs> we'll know. let that be unknown. <laughs> we'll let that be unknown. Fair enough. Fair enough. So the way it works is, first of all, it's not the schools who are paying these athletes to actually come and play for their universities. What you have now, though, are these things called NIL collectives, which are usually this collective of alumni and very wealthy people who happen to be fans of the school. Sometimes they're known as boosters, and while boosters used to use their connections to help the program, part of their duties now involve trying to help athletes get these great NIL contracts through their connections or networks within their local communities. That can't be part of their pitch, though, but some schools are quickly gaining reputations as places that will help you make money long before you ever turn pro. So in the old days, you had like the boosters who would be like, yeah, we'll make sure you get a good dorm or something. And everyone's wondering, are they actually paying the kids under the table? Now, th these boosters are just overtly being like, so glad you're here. Let's get you six figures. You know, one of the big things taking a look at NIL is 
they're basically making what was already an unspoken rule in college sports now out in the open. Florida quarterback recruit Jaden Rashada requested a release from his national letter of intent Tuesday night after a $13 million name, image, and likeness deal reportedly fell through. And with that raises a lot of questions and it has some coaches and some, you know, sports legends like Charles Barkley asking if the floodgates have opened too quickly. Yeah, tell me about the the concerns here because like, are, are there complications or is this just undeniably great thing for student athletes? So I think the way a lot of people see this right now is that the introduction of NIL is righting a wrong of what many people considered an oppressive structure that the NCAA had put in place with dealing with student athletes, where these athletes were doing all the work on the court and, and earning these universities hundreds of millions, billions of dollars, and they weren't earning a dime from it. And it was kind of under this idea that they get an education in return. That's Um, all they get. That's all there is. That's all they get. And so when it comes to taking a look at the cons and what people are sort of concerned about is in July 2021, when NIL took into effect from the NCAA, it sort of was just a blanket rule that, that, that announced that players can now profit off their name, image, and likeness. But it didn't really have any structures or guidelines in place. It kind of was like a wild, wild west. Very difficult to manage a roster right now for, for coaches. The dying words of every successful business is somebody sitting there saying, well, this is how we've always done things. But with the resources that universities have, you were seeing a, a lot of universities take it upon themselves to employ these classes, the, these organizations to make it sh- make sure that their athletes w- would be able to use NIL effectively. What people don't realize is that when the NCAA decided that they were going to allow NIL, they also determined that it was going to be left up to states what was going to happen to high school athletes. Mm. And I think that's the one big thing that people don't realize is that NIL is continuing beyond the college level into the high school level and and all the way down to the elementary school level at this point. Anybody can profit. Well, and so does that mean like the concern that the NCAA was always saying was like, you know, we don't want shady agents showing up to our campuses. But like now you literally could have some like representative from Nike or like the local car dealership showing up to like the 14 year olds basketball game. And I think that's the big concern that a lot of coaches, especially at the local and high school levels, have right now is what am I going to do with my public school athletes who do not have the structure and the resources in place to get the type of advice that you need to navigate NIL without getting burned? The other big thing is... Does it put a target on a lot of these high school athletes' backs who who do come from uh, uh, neighborhoods that, that are rough, you know? And, and, you know, it's already tough enough being a, a student athlete with that much pressure from your community as is. And then when you put a dollar sign on, on these kids' heads who are aged from 14 to 18 years old, it's a lot different than when you're talking about a college athlete who is 18 to 22. Just a ton of money here. And while some of these athletes you said are retaining these experienced agents and lawyers to look after their interests, others aren't. Others can't. This, by the way, will be featured in an episode of Impact by Nightline. It's called Cashing In, the Debate Over Paying College Athletes. Impact by Nightline streams only on Hulu. New episodes drop every Thursday. So we're going to see this one later tonight. Ashan Singh, great reporting. Thank you. Appreciate you, Brad. Take care now. One more quick break. When we come back, it doesn't seem that complicated until you're trying to save someone's life. All the questions you didn't even know you had about Narcan when we come back. 
Hey, I'm Andy Mitchell, a New York Times bestselling author. And I'm Sabrina Kohlberg, a morning television producer. We're moms of toddlers and best friends of 20 years. And we both love to talk about being parents, yes, but also pop culture. So we're combining our two interests by talking to celebrities, writers, and fellow scholars of TV and movies. Cinema, really. About what we all can learn from the fictional moms we love to watch. From ABC Audio and Good Morning America, Pop Culture Moms is out now wherever you listen to podcasts. And one last thing. What if I told you that if you wanted to stop a disease in its tracks, a disease that kills 80,000 people a year, you could do it with a simple over-the-counter drug available to everyone. You could just carry it around and reverse death. That is how revolutionary the drug naloxone is. It can reverse an opioid overdose in real time. And yesterday, the FDA officially authorized the naloxone brand Narcan to be made available over-the-counter. I'm stoked. That's Jan Brown, who runs an addiction recovery center in Virginia called Spirit Works, and she has personally saved lives with Narcan. I personally use Narcan on somebody who's come through um, our recovery center. Um, We work with family members, so we equip parents with it. She's someone who trains people who want to know what to do in the event that someone near them suffers an overdose. So now that this drug is legal for anyone to purchase, I figured I would ask her all these basic questions we maybe all should know. When you ask for Narcan at your pharmacy, what are you going to get? You are going to get a box um, that has two nasal spray, four milligrams of of the medication. They're like little like plastic things with a plunger? Yeah, it's a little plastic thing and you, you literally push the plunger, if you will, and spray it right up in somebody's nostril. This drug is made to counteract an opioid overdose, meaning heroin, fentanyl, certain pills. But that leads to an even more basic question. How do you know if someone's undergoing an overdose? Well, Jan says they're often blue or clammy. They're unresponsive. Sadly, when people are really heading in the direction of of dying, um, you'll hear a gurgling sound that sounds a lot like what we call the death rattle. What if you get it wrong? What if they're not overdosing and you give this person naloxone? So naloxone won't hurt. And as far as steps, the CDC says first you call 911 immediately, then you administer the Narcan. Because once someone wakes up, and sometimes it does take both doses, you'll want medical professionals well on their way. When they wake up, some, I mean, they're in, they're in withdrawal, right? And so sometimes they're confused, sometimes they're combative, they're mad because you messed up their high, even though you just saved their life. Jan says if that sounds intense, well, so is knowing that you were just a pharmacy purchase away from saving a life. Which is why, after this FDA decision, she's recommending everyone get trained up on this, whether you think you'll need it or not. Really useful stuff there from Jan. And a thank you to one of our listeners, Emma, who's volunteered to train me how to use Narcan here in New York. I'd probably be taking you up on that offer, Emma. More on all these stories at abcnews.com or the ABC News app. I'm Brad Milkey. See you tomorrow. 